It's glory for me. What a lovely and spirited song we were able to join in together. Certainly it would be appropriate to express a word of appreciation to all of our song leaders here at Pippin who do such a fantastic job leading us in singing. And in fact, all the men that lead us in prayers and every other aspect of worship. It truly is an exciting time to come together. So often the matters of the world can be so discouraging and yet for a while to turn our attention to the matters eternal, things that uplift us and encourage us so. And the words of these songs truly are one of the things that can do that very easily. This evening as we come to this part of the service tonight to consider a lesson entitled The Sin of Moses. And as we look at the title of that lesson, I think as Brother Roger mentioned near the close of the service this morning, it is the case that tonight as we give some appreciation to the character of that sin of Moses, it might entirely be fair to begin it with some of these comments. Amazing, isn't it? The role, the status, the stature, if you please, that Moses occupies in that Old Testament narrative. In fact, from the very occasion of his birth all the way until his death, Moses seems to occupy a very critical role of importance and significance, doesn't he? There's that remarkable, remarkable deliverance in which though the baby boys typically were slain yet, his parents did manage to save him. And what a great leader of Israel he came to be. All the way into the time of his death, when in Deuteronomy 34, he pleaded with the Lord on one occasion till he might enter into the promised land. But yet God told him that he would in fact be able merely to see it. And then it was there on those mountains, just outside it, when in fact he passed away. All the time we see from Exodus chapter 2 all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 34, this man Moses occupied such an important and central role. Some of these comments, in addition, might also be made. The Hebrew writer, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, even himself makes mention of the great role that Moses played when there it says not once but twice that he was faithful in all his house. That was a momentous statement, wasn't it? And yet it's used to make a contrast to how much greater the Lord was. For even though Moses was faithful in his house, the Lord, in fact, as the ruler over his own house, whose house we are if we remain faithful. The interest then in all of that perhaps attaches to the final statements on that slide. There are many commendary, complimentary things that might be said about Moses. The meekest man in the earth, Numbers 12 verse 3 a man known for his obedience as well as his patience and long-suffering character with that stubborn people that he led. But all the while we so quickly say those things, Moses could be stirred to anger. That happened in Exodus 32 when he cast down the tables of stone and of course they were broken. In light of all of that, I suspect then it's fair to ask, Given a man of the kind of importance that this man was in the Old Testament, what about that particular sin that Brother Cale read before us a moment ago from Numbers chapter 20? What was it that you and I might state about that sin that could serve as some lessons that can help us along our journey of life as well? May I submit to you, perhaps we can learn much from the mistake that Moses made so that we might not make a parallel mistake that we might not, in fact, give ourselves over to do the kind of thing that Moses, in fact, did. 
In fact, why don't we do that at the outset of the lesson? Why don't we give some thought next to the context of that particular scene in Numbers chapter 20 and not only, of course, see the historical feature of it, but also the characteristics of what you and I can glean from that particular circumstance. Numbers chapter 20 opens in this fashion. The children of Israel in their journeys, in their wanderings, had at this point come to the wilderness of Zion, spelled Z-I-N. And we learn so quickly in verses 1 and 2 that this was located relatively near that city of Kadesh. As the people came to this location, we quickly learned that likely in the annals of Israelite history, it was not the most pleasant of places. For after all, here were some things that this chapter reveals to us. First, Miriam died there, the very sister of Moses and Aaron. Upon her burial, we though notice a number of other statements were made about this location. In fact, in quick order, we find there was no water there. The children of Israel on this occasion found themselves with lack of water for both them and their animals. And in fact, given the nature and the great need of water, this would have become a catastrophe very quickly. There is no water. Notice again verse number 2. As you give thought to the fact there was no water, this led the people to in fact often do the things they had done otherwise. They began to complain. Look at the wording of verse number 3 with me, please. And the people choked with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Verse 4, And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? And then verse 5, And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed, or of figs, or of vines, or of pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. The people seem to then recollect and recall the former days when even in Egypt, they there enjoyed, it seems, a particular number of physical blessings different than what they had here. And they said, would God you'd left us there. That almost borders on blasphemy, doesn't it? The God of heaven having in mind and with careful intent to use this people and bring them into a place that would ultimately lead to the coming of the great Savior into the world, and yet they have a desire, even a wish, to return to Egypt? It seems they were so quick to forget the lavish and abundant way that God had blessed them. He had already sustained them through the periods of wilderness wandering already. And now they had the nerve when a little bit of adversity came, to in fact chide with Moses, to contend with Moses, to even have a desire and request to go back to Egypt? You'll notice in light of all of that, the fact that there was no water there was the particular matter that the God of heaven chose to address in such rapid and great fashion. In fact, you'll see it on that slide. Moses and Aaron, verse number 6, approached the Lord. They knew where to turn to find results, they knew where to return to find an answer to the problems that they faced. Verse 6 closes by saying, The glory of the Lord appeared to them. When that glory appeared, God in fact spoke to Moses and gave him some very direct orders. He was in fact to take that rod after assembling the people. 
He was furthermore, in fact, to speak unto that rock, and out of it would come forth water not only sufficient in abundance for the people, but also for the animals as well. You'll notice that Moses and Aaron did exactly to one point at least, as God had said. They did gather the people. He did take the rod just as God had said. But then on the critical moment, Moses in fact made a statement that would read like this in verse number 10. Hear now, you rebels, must we fetch water out of this rock for you? And then Moses in the next verse struck the rock twice. And God did bring forth water abundantly for the animals as well as the people. But we quickly observe in verse number 12 that God was very displeased with what Moses had done. I would invite you to read again verses 12 and 13, the last two verses that Brother Cale had read before. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and He was sanctified in them. And we thus find that this gentleman, this man, who of course was well in years by this time, we notice God had said, You, Moses, and you, Aaron, shall not bring this people into the land of promise, into that promised land, because of this sin. When you and I reflect on the character of that sin, perhaps that leads us to the bottom of that slide. Moses, as we learn in some other passages, besought the Lord that he might be allowed to enter into the promised land. He, in fact, vehemently asked. And every time upon God's response, on one occasion at least, we notice God said, Do not ask me of this anymore. I have heard your petitions. I will allow you to look over into the land and I will allow you to in fact envision it, but you will not be permitted to enter it. And with that, we find the curtain closing in Deuteronomy 34 on Moses' life with a blessing of witnessing, but not allowed to enter it. I wonder what might you and I see as we reflect on this particular sin of Numbers chapter 20. Here are some thoughts it would seem to me fair to consider. And perhaps we'll look at a quick map as we give some thought to where were the children of Israel when this took place. On that map, I know the writing of some portions of it is rather small. If you'll look at the word Simeon at the bottom left-hand side of that map, that is basically the allotment, all of it, of the various tribes, or at least a rough depiction of the allotment of the tribes. But if you notice the word Simeon, just beneath it, is a little dot with a city there. Notice below that, in much fainter writing, is the wilderness of Zion. That at least gives us an idea of where the children of Israel were, roughly near the bottom of that map, and so the land of promise was just north of where they then were. They were so close to obtaining it. We remember, though, but only five chapters previous is when spies had been sent into that land, and ten of them came back and said, We cannot take it. Ten of them came back and said, It is a land flowing with milk and honey, and it is a land of great prosperity. But we are like grasshoppers in their sight, and we are not able to take it. Thus, because of that unbelief, they were thus destined to wander for some 38 more years 
through this wilderness and those in this vicinity, and only then would they finally arrive at the promised land entering from the direction of your right, up there roughly where the city of uh, the region of Gad is, they will ultimately enter from the east in that direction. But for now, might we ask about one of the statements concerning the influence of others? Moses and Aaron often found themselves facing a great host that was dissatisfied. The children of Israel more than once found themselves lacking in water, lacking in food, lacking in other things that was their desire. And when they found themselves in those conditions, so often they directly confronted Moses and Aaron. Why have you brought us here? Why have you in fact brought us out of a land of plenty and brought us to a place where there's nothing? We'd have been better off if you'd left us in Egypt. They in fact stated something like that here, didn't they? Might I invite us to give some thought to the influence of others, specifically stated in a way like this. It seems that the frustration that Moses more than once had felt led him on this occasion to go beyond what God had said for him to do. He was told to speak to the rock, and perhaps in that frustration he did more than that, far more. As we'll see throughout the course of the lesson tonight, that cost him his entrance into the promised land. You and I certainly should appreciate that it's not good to so behave ourselves and conduct ourselves so as to put a stumbling block before the life of somebody else. When I or you act in such a way that we, in essence, at least indirectly, cause someone else to stumble, to lose their faithfulness, to lose their confidence in their heart, and thus to separate themselves from where God would have them to be. What a tragedy to think that we might influence someone else in that way, and yet think about the children of Israel. Many of those individuals that were amongst Israel, of course, were the so-called elders of the group. They were the family leaders, the family heads, if you please. From the language here and other places, it seems as they may have been the chief protagonists coming before Moses with the nerve and gall to challenge him and to say, why did you bring us here? We're without water or food or other necessities as the case may be. And did you notice they said, this is no place for, for vines, for figs. This is no place for seed. They were seemingly so dissatisfied with where they were without the viewpoint to realize this is not where God ultimately is taking us. The promised land isn't here yet. We're headed that way. This people was so often impatient, so often not long-suffering, so often unwilling to in fact bear with God who would lead them to where He needed them and wanted them to be. We notice that they often exerted such a hard influence on Moses and Aaron. You and I might think about that again from the perspective of ourselves. Do you and I so conduct ourselves that it makes our elders' job more difficult than it could be, more difficult than it should be, because of the choices that we make, the matters that they have to face, the confrontations that they must bear due to the choices perhaps you and I make? That's a sadness, isn't it? And it adds hardship to them when it ought not be. The influence of others perhaps leads us to some of these verses. In Romans 14, 13, we are expressly told that we should not, must not, put a stumbling block before others. 
That particular context reminds us there of that circumstance when Paul was writing to the church in Rome, and it was to them in matters of liberty. He said, even then, you should not conduct yourself, although perhaps in the final analysis, such is not inappropriate in terms of being sinful. Nonetheless, if it causes someone else to stumble, if it causes someone else to become distrustful of the Lord, then it's better off not being done. In 1 Corinthians 8, verses 9 and 10, it was there that in that same matter Paul discussed concerning eating of meats. It had been offered to idols. And didn't he say there, if it cause my brother to stumble, I'll eat no meat while the world standeth. Interesting, isn't it? The love that Paul had for his brethren and the desire that he had to conduct himself in such a way that it would not cause them to stumble or to sin. You may notice some additional passages. The chore and the challenge before us is to lead others along the pathway of faithfulness, not the pathway of sinfulness. We are urged to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith, Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10. And we're admonished in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, to do, to do evil to no man, but rather to do good unto all men. That's the admonition given to us, isn't it? That includes our brethren. It includes others as well as we strive to lead and to teach them the beautiful pathway of salvation. In addition to the matter of the influence that was exerted so negatively upon Moses and Aaron, what about the matter of anger? As you can see, it would seem that matters boiled up within Moses to the point that his anger spilled forward, to the point that in haste he struck that rock twice, taking to himself the glory that was attached to the moment, and in so doing, what a great matter it was. The matter of anger is something I suppose all of us find challenging, at least from time to time. I have, in fact, written it in the following way. The language that Moses used, it seems, was rather telling in verse 10. You'll notice it was he who said, Hear now, ye rebels. Isn't it interesting that throughout this context, we seemingly see that Moses became rather angry, but we do not see God being angry. Now, there were times when God was upset with His people, in Exodus 32, when they danced around the golden calf and God's anger had heated and was so wrathful against them. But this was a context, despite their complaining, God's anger is not mentioned in verses 7 through 13 as it related to the children of Israel. Perhaps that leads us to notice that this was an area that we might not have thought would be one of a challenge to Moses. After all, he was a very meek man. Numbers 12 verse 3 the meekest man in the earth. And so often his patience had been one in which he had pleaded to God on behalf of the children of Israel. More than once it was he who interceded for them. Despite their sinfulness, despite their failures, despite the shortcomings within them, he nonetheless knew that God had a plan for them. And he besought God on their behalf. But this time something welled up within him. His anger overcame him. He struck that rock twice. He took the glory to himself. And in so doing, he caused himself entrance into that promised land. When you think about anger, I suppose our thoughts really ought to continue 
like these. Because many of us may, as we gauge ourselves and others, recognize that there are strengths. Not all of us have the same strengths. Some man may well, it seems, be very strong in some arena of life. Maybe through many years and through much consideration, he has shown he's mastered it on so many occasions. But yet, perhaps the same thing might have been said of Moses. How often was his strength of character and his meekness so often seen? And how often did it appear he was untouchable in that arena of life? And yet, that's the very arena in which on this occasion he sinned and it cost him entrance into the land of Canaan. I wonder how often the same thing might be said of you and me. He or she appears to be so strong in that area of life, and yet in that same area, in a moment of weakness, fault is found, difficulties arise, problems bubble to the surface, and great difficulties must be faced. The lesson, it seems, quickly we each can learn is, may we never become too haughty. May we never become too overlooking of what weaknesses can appear, for all of us can be called. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. When you and I then realize even a man as strong as Moses in this moment of weakness could in fact fall, can you and I not find ourselves in a similar situation? Anger is something, I suppose, that again is so easily able to bubble forth to the surface. Something happens and we begin to rage within and we suddenly say something. And no sooner do we say it than we regret it. Or in that heat of an anger, we do something. And no sooner is it done than we wish we had never done it. Anger can be a very powerful and compelling thing, can't it? Perhaps we can use Jesus as an example. Anger by itself isn't sinful. Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 became angry. Same thing in John chapter 2. So angry that in fact He chased the money changers and overturned the tables, making a whip and chasing the animals away. But He did not allow the anger to result in sin. And doesn't that remind us of the admonition of Paul in Ephesians 4.26? Be angry and sin not. That latter part sometimes can be the great challenge, can't it? To perhaps allow ourselves to react in an emotional enough way so that others are aware that what was done was not right, but yet to not let ourselves lapse into a sinful behavior as a result of the anger. Moses, it seems, failed in that matter. You'll notice here that as he did not merely speak to the rock, but rather... It seems he lifted the rod, struck it twice, brought the glory and the credit to himself and to Aaron. It would be something that God directly challenged him on. When you think about anger, maybe it brings us to point three, disobedience. God had said rather clearly, speak to the rock. That was to be done after he assembled the group. That was to be done after, in fact, he had taken the rod this would perhaps be a good time to make note of a partial obedience. I say that very carefully. Moses did take the rod as God told him, and he did assemble the group as God told him, but he did not speak to the rock as God told him. He did that, and then some he also struck it twice. 
So you'll notice that there is really no such thing as partial obedience. To partially obey is to disobey, isn't it? A part of the whole is not the whole, is it? And here we learn a valiant lesson. And how careful must you and I be? In fact, couldn't Samuel, in fact, have said the same thing as it related to Saul? In 1 Samuel 15, Saul could say, But I did destroy most of the Amalekites. I did destroy most all of the nobles. However, you brought back the king and you brought back some of the animals and God said destroy all of them, 1 Samuel 15, verses 12 to 22. And there, of course, God was displeased with Saul as well. Partial obedience is not obedience, is it? Perhaps in light of that, it leads us to note that God demanded obedience of Moses just as He did the children of Israel. And He demanded obedience of Moses just as He had the other records of the Old Testament. We noticed at some length regarding Nadab and Abihu on Sunday morning. There they offered what He commanded them not. And that was displeasing to God. That was in fact unsatisfactory to Him. Is any less true today? There might be any number who would say, But we have obeyed you, Lord. We assemble to worship. But then when one looks at the description of their worship and the plan of salvation that they uphold and believe, and one finds it not listed in the sacred text of the Bible, then their words, of course, fall on deaf ears, don't they? You really didn't obey. You may have done one or two things along the way that God described, but the totality you failed because you substituted. You chose to do other things besides what God said. That's one of the great matters about disobedience, isn't it? At its most basic level, it's so simple. It's merely doing anything, no matter what, but anything besides what God has said. Here Moses and Aaron seemingly did what innocently looked like it was just a simple change. They did gather the people. They did make use of the rod. But instead of speaking to the rock, it was struck twice. Perhaps in light of that disobedience, look at some of these matters at the bottom. What about excuses as it relates to this? This might be a fair time when Moses could have said, God, this people have been so frustrating. I have been under a tremendous load and burden with regard to this people. But notice, God didn't spare him because of that. God didn't overlook this disobedience because of the pressures of the people. Obedience was still expected, and obedience was even still demanded. The same matter might well in power be asserted today, mightn't it? You and I might thus say, But God, there's great sickness in my family. Can't you understand? God said, you still need to obey. But God, the pressures at work are overwhelming. You still need to obey. But God, matters at school for my children are truly a gigantic challenge. That doesn't excuse disobedience. And that list could go on and on. All of us find ourselves beneath the pressures and the difficulties of life. That does not excuse disobedience. Not in the slightest. God still expects us to be faithful. What about His own Son? Did Jesus face a great deal of difficulties? 
While he tabernacled in the flesh, the obstinacy and the stubbornness of people, so often the disbelief that they exhibited, and as the time of the cross drew near, what about the great tragedy? There was the matter of what Peter did in terms of his denial. There was the betrayal of Judas. There was the other Jewish leaders and all the insults they hurled at him. The physical difficulties from the scourging and otherwise. And yet the Lord was faithful to the will of His heavenly Father. All the while that was His singular and sole desire. May you and I in wisdom use that as an example for ourselves. You'll notice that in this instance Moses disobeyed and a part of that was the language that was used in verses 10 and 11 and the statement that God made in verse 12. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses took some of the glory to himself. Must we do this? Inasmuch as you are lacking in water and inasmuch as the God of heaven knows that you need it, must we, Aaron, my brother and myself, provide this water for you? Perhaps that's a point when again a great deal of consideration might be made. And I've tried to briefly present it like this. Must we bring water out of this rock for you? Somewhat shocking to hear those kind of words come out of Moses' mouth, given again that he was so meek on so many other occasions and so self-controlled on so many other occasions, and yet this time things were different. The language of verse number 12 is very telling. I would invite you to read it with me again as we have read it before. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, so this was God's verdict of what had happened. Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. The error that Moses had thus committed... You did not sanctify me among the people of Israel. You again took some of that credit for yourself when it was not your right and privilege. It did not belong to you. You did not sanctify me properly. And I suppose that begs the question about your life and mine. Do you and I fail from time to time to properly credit and exalt the name of God? Do we take some of the glory for ourselves, at least indirectly? It is something to consider in a very dramatic fashion, isn't it? Moses failed in that regard. This man who had been privileged to be on the mount while the tables were given, who had been privileged more than once to ascend that Mount Sinai and be there in very presence with the God of heaven in some way or fashion, and yet he himself here took some of that glory that rightfully belonged to God himself. Those comments lead me to say this. Humility is the very matter that was missing in the proper abundance on this occasion. More than once in the sacred text of the Bible, that was the fault of others as well. What about Belshazzar in Daniel 5.23? We remember this was a, very, a rather notable Persian monarch. And yet we find even in his life when the God of heaven was aware of what he was, what was aware of what he had done, and he was straightforwardly told, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting because the God in heaven you did not glorify. Here was one who had opportunity and every right to glorify the name of the God of heaven. He hadn't done it and for that he would be found lacking. One chapter earlier in Daniel chapter 4, we notice Nebuchadnezzar, he too was addressed. 
And we will recall the rather remarkable saga that befell him. He had a vision, a dream, if you please, really. And in that dream, he noticed the tree was cut down, but the stump was left. And out of that stump, it ultimately grew again. He was that tree that was cut. And we noticed so amazingly that he did live for a period of some seven years as a beast of the field because he had the nerve and the gall to not glorify the God of heaven. He did learn his valiant lesson, didn't he? That says to you and me how noble it is, even with regard to the talents God has given us. And this is something that we should carefully keep in mind. After all, wasn't it true with regard to Herod in Acts chapter 12? He was a gifted speaker. There seems to be no question about that. Herod was a talented orator. He was able to stand apparently and mesmerize those who listened as they hung on his every word. The people, in fact, lifted him up and said, He speaks as one who is a God. The next two verses say that God was displeased with that attitude. He was eaten of worms and died. Maybe that says a great deal about the talents that you and I have. Do we thank God for those talents? Are we appreciative of them and are we ready to use them? Not as if they are for our glory, but for His glory so that we can direct all the credit to the one who gave them to us. It certainly should be that way, and may we ever be quick to appreciate how good God has been to the host of us as we think about those abilities, those capacities, those capabilities that God has so freely given to us. Perhaps that reminds us, as we close that slide, about the scene of God's judgment. There is coming a time when we will give account how we've used those talents. That takes us back here to the scene in Numbers chapter 20. Because it might be that some would say, but wasn't God unfair on this occasion? This man had led this people of Israel for so long, and this was just one mistake. Shouldn't God have forgiven him? Shouldn't God have allowed him to lead them into the promised land? Shouldn't God have blessed him with that because he'd lived his life to appreciate that event, at least from the time of his calling in Exodus chapter 3? However, you and I must never question God. He always does what's right. That was the haunting question asked so many years earlier in Genesis 18 verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer again is rhetorically stated is yes, He always does what's right. It isn't our place to question God's judgment. He did what was right. It was better for Moses not to see that land of Canaan. Given the nature of his sin, we must recognize the Word of God teaches us that. But it does lead us to conclude our lesson the following way. As you think about that judgment... May we use it as we think about Romans 9, verse number 20. On that occasion, a very powerful question is asked. The statement was a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 18. Just as surely as a potter is able to take clay and mold it and shape it and form it into the thing that's desired, be it a bowl, a plate, a vase, whatever the case may be, Paul asked the question, shall the Clay, say to him that made me, Why hast thou made me thus? The clay should not have any prerogative to question the potter on what he makes. The clay should happily allow itself to be molded 
and shape to what the potter would have it to be. And Paul's point really is that as Christians, we should be the same. God is the potter. And you and I, like plastic clay in His hands, should allow Him to mold us and shape us by the direction of His Word into the nature of what He would have us to be. That's what will bring the proper glory to Himself, and that's what will lead us to be the greatest of servants in His kingdom. It is for all those reasons we perhaps close the lesson by noting again the statement of those talents. In Matthew chapter 25, we remember that there was, was a day of reckoning when the various talents were distributed. Those increments of money, the five-talent man, the two-talent man, the one-talent man, there was a time when each gave reckoning to what had been accomplished or what had not been accomplished. In regard to your abilities and mine, then, may we close this lesson by saying, we have been able to learn much about this sin of Moses. There was the influence exerted upon him and Aaron by others, and that was so often negative, and that was a shameful thing. Beyond that, there was the anger that Moses displayed, allowing his anger to reach a point here that was improper and sinful. The disobedience that he showed was certainly not approved, and in fact it stands as a testimony through the end of his life to this sin committed here. Then you and I noticed also the self-glorification and how that, that glory belonged to God, not to Him. And finally, there was that proper and right judgment of the God of heaven. In all of these ways, we have seen that there are parallels that can be just as challenging to us Maybe our anger has caught us more than once. Maybe you and I have been tempted to take too much credit to ourselves. Maybe we too have been in position to disobey. And maybe we have been trying to hide it all this time. Hiding disobedience does not make it right. We must have it forgiven. And the only way that's done is by coming to terms with what the Word of God has taught us and to do what He has commanded this very evening, if you find yourself in a position like that, why not come before the precious God of heaven, make confession of the errors in your life, doing the things and returning to your proper place of faithfulness? A prayer from us to God on your behalf will certainly be that which the New Testament has described. If you find yourself having never become a Christian, why not this very evening making that a reality? It will truly be a magnificent day in your life. Tonight, if we could help one or more in your response to the gospel call of invitation, we would urge you to come even as the Lord invites you to, and to do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.